0: Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Open Dialogues, the podcast by Open Dialogue. I am Michael Coppens. I am your host today, as well as.
1: I am Ronald Ashley, your co host.
0: And today I'm so very happy for our guest, Fred Dust, to be joining us. Fred Dust is the author of Making Conversations, a book that I've referenced many times before in this podcast. So I'm super thrilled to have Fred with us today. Welcome, Fred. Do you want to tell us a story about yourself and how you got here and interested in conversations?
2: Yeah, I know. So thanks so much for having me. When you reached out, I was actually delighted to to participate. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's like so many, as with all stories, there's so many kind of original stories, you know, like where do you want to start the conversation? And I think I'll tell you there's something that's kind of like kind of unrecorded because it happened after I'd sold the book, which is that I, I sold the book And what happens when you sell a book is like the publisher takes you to lunch at this kind of fancy restaurant, and they're like, the book is yours, we're not going to touch anything. They're like, Oh, we might have to change the title. In fact, we have to change the title and things like like they go. That's kind of how it goes. And it's just like perfect, whatever you want. Oh, except for one thing. You wrote a book that's entirely about how we lost dialogue in the world. And we actually don't want that book. We want a book that's entirely about how we can be entirely optimistic about dialogue and conversation in the world. And I was like, well, that's a different book. And she was like, I know, but it's the book we need. And I think that's a funny story because what ended up happening is that as opposed to it being like a nine month process to kind of like just write what I thought I knew about dialogue, we had to do like about a year and a half worth of writing and research to actually begin to get to a place where you could be relentlessly optimistic about conversation and dialogue and how it happens in the world. And at the end of it, I had a really distinctive moment where I was... I'd gone to a school for kids who are severely addicted, many of them now addicted to all new things, computers, gaming, pornography, the kinds of things that that kids are addicted to today. And I'd met a young woman who was like, can I please, please do an interview for the book? And I was like, well, the book's done. It's not going to make it into it. And she's like, that's not a problem. Like, I just want to do an interview. And at the end of the interview, she was like, can I ask you a question? And I was like, sure. And she's like, well, at the end of this research and writing the book, do you feel like you're cured? And I was like, well, I'm not. Sick, and then I was like, "Oh wait, I was in fact sick," and so I did in fact feel like the whole writing of the book actually gave me a, a whole kind of conversational cure. So, kind of a little bit a sideline, but a little kind of like backstory around the kind of stuff we had to go through, just in terms of discovery throughout the writing of the book.
0: Yeah, that is very interesting. I, I definitely want to to go a bit deeper into the fact that you you felt like, "Oh well, I I was sick conversationally speaking," and. It is interesting to kind of explore what makes a sane conversation, like a, a, a good conversation. I wonder, now, now that you have been cured, what, what is your take on what is a sane conversation and, and what are some of the things that we can all do to just get a little bit closer to having more productive, sane kind of yeah. conversations, perhaps?
2: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. And I, I, th- I think that, I mean, just to give you a, a sense, like, that's like, the book was kind of born out of like the 27, 2016 elections, all the things that had shifted in the United States, the kind of notion that we'd kind of lost our way in terms of going to have conversations with our neighbors, with our friends, with colleagues. And so... And, and definitely you still see this kind of like screaming into the void of what happens with the, with conversations that are currently happening. But what I realize is that there are people, everyday people who kind of somehow manifest and are able to kind of get through the hardest conversations, but they do it using creativity. And in some cases it's using Um, art as a structure to kind of have a conversation about something different right so it's like I write about this in the book like the group that basically used sex books books about sex to actually get comfortable talking about sex themselves and kind of move themselves forward and so there's all kinds of frames and structures we have that can actually allow us to have not safe conversations I'm not interested in safe conversations but good conversations real conversations honest conversations and and I think that's a lot about kind of watching for places where there's bias-based built into the room, and you might not even know it, where the space itself establishes a kind of bias. It's about kind of like listening to how you're feeling and really kind of expressing those, those feelings as well. And so it really, we're looking all the time for the different ways that you can actually kind of prop up a conversation, make it feel better, make it feel more, make people feel more confident. And specifically, what I'm most interested in is finding people or finding ways for people to have conversations with people who are different than them, or for that matter, things or or. Or organisms that are different. I'm as interested in interspecial conversation. I'm interested in like collaborations. There's an amazing artist, Thomas Saracino. I don't know if you know his work, but he does collaborations with spiders, significant art collaborations with spiders. He also does collaborations with air patterns and winds. I'm very interested in how we kind of move beyond just the notion of kind of inter, inter interhuman interspecial com- conversation to beyond that. Like how can we go kind of bigger and broader as we kind of go forward into the world?
1: I'm I'm really interested to understand more. The idea of losing, that we had a certain capability to converse and we've lost it. Because my, my initial reaction, but it's coming from a very uninformed place, is I'm, I'm not sure we we were really having deeper or more meaningful conversations in the past. So I'm very interested to understand what is what is that journey and and what were those conversations that were more useful to have that we're not having anymore?
2: I'm glad you asked that. I mean, I think that there are I, it's really like there's waxing and waning of conversation in the history of humankind. So I think there are moments in civilizations, moments in kind of cultures where conversations kind of reign supreme, where there was kind of more artistry, more thought, more design, more creativity placed into the context of conversation, and then it wanes. And so I, I'm, I'm not kind of um, suggesting that we had it up until a moment and then it just stopped. It's more that there are rises and falls in the, in the in the landscape of conversation historically. So if you look at, I mean, one of the kind of places I looked a lot is ancient Greece, only because there were so many diverse models for the conversations that could happen. You know, so there was, there were reclining conversations, there were, you know, all kinds of different ranges of conversations. I look a lot at spirituality and religion, because within the frames of different religious beliefs, there's different structures for different kinds of conversations. How do you have a conversation about death, which we're quite bad at, right? And that's That's a little bit disturbing, given the fact that we've just gone through multiple years of kind of like significant loss. And so how then do we kind of invite conversations about death that feel comfortable and safe and engaged? And if you look at so many religions, they have such phenomenal practices around the kind of conversations you have around the loss of somebody. So so the point was really to kind of like seek inspiration. I write a lot about pilgrimage and pilgrimage is actually a form of, of spiritual engagement that happens across almost all cultures. So almost every culture has a form of pilgrimage. And yet there's a kind of dialogue that happens between pilgrims, partially because everybody's going together to the same place. You know, it's like, whether it's like going to Mecca or whether it's going to Santiago de, de Castello, or it's going, it's like, you basically have these different kinds of contexts, but the, but the bonds that are built are uniquely set for what a pilgrimage kind of provides. So The premise is not so much that it's like, oh yeah, we had it and then we lost it. It's just that it's like, if we look, we can find moments where it happens and it happens in profound and really remarkable ways. And those are things to borrow from. And then the reality is for me, originally I was like, oh, I want to look at these spectacular things, pilgrimages. And pilgrimage ended up being like three paragraphs in the book because what ended up becoming more fascinating to me was like, who are these neighbors who had this hard conversation and how do they do it? Who's, what's a family that had a hard conversation and ended it? What's a, you know, that was the thing that I was really interested in. It's just like, wait, it's not just spectacular methods. It's actually every day that can be, can be quite useful. So no, there was, there's no like, there's no like, oh, and now it ended. <laughs> it's just that it's like, it just kind of goes up and down over time.
1: That, that that makes uh, a lot of sense. And thinking of pilgrimages and so on, I, I like when you talk about the activity of doing something together as a conversation, right? So perhaps we can talk about a certain topic, but we can do something together. And that creates a space where then other things can happen. This, this might be a, a, a very naive question, but... It, what, what is your sense of where, wh- what is toxic or sick, or I don't know what is the right word in terms of what we're doing now, where from a data perspective, we're having more conversations than ever. We're exchanging mm-hmm. messages all the time, sending all sorts of information back and forth, so many different people to speak to. And at the same time, we're talking about, well there's something wrong about conversations like what's the why didn't more the ability to converse more transform into something positive and instead we have all the various problems that we have around the world
2: yeah you know it's like I believe that we should take conversation seriously I think we should also kind of treat it creatively and I think we should give it and I think we should give the 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 medium the respect um that it it deserves and I think that one of the things that's happened in all the kind of digital and I'm I'm not talking about kind of deep conversations that happen via email or the kind of collaborations that happen when you're in a document together I'm talking about the Twitters and the the kind of the, the kind of fast rapid pace kind of conversations which is that I feel like we don't take the same level of respect because it becomes an anonymous dialogue, right? In essence, you're speaking to an unknown. And so you will say things in that context, in a, in an ether sphere that you wouldn't say if I was sitting face to face to you. So it's like, so there are things that like, I might kind of broadcast that it's like, because it's like, I have no real notion of the recipient. And so I think that when we start to kind of recognize that, no, even when I'm tweeting, there's a human behind it on the other side that, that's receiving it, it starts to humanize it. So a really interesting experience I had, especially when the book first came out is that it's like, you show up in like these news journals or McKinsey Quarterly or whatever it is and you get haters, right? So it's like the first people who really hated me were vegans. Vegans, I had talked about talking to my hunter, a hunter who hunts my property on on PBS NewsHour and vegans hated me. And, And I was just like, hey guys, like I have so many friends who are vegans. This is through Twitter. I was like, and you guys can try to convince me and I'm sure I'll be a vegan one day. And they were like, oh yeah, I bet you would. That'd be awesome. And so once you just kind of basically be like, hey, I'm real. (laughs) It's like, you know, my favorite was I had a McKinsey Quarterly had published a piece on the on the thing and on the book. And immediately the Twitter response was, oh, hey, how does your work relate to the oppression of, you know, underclasses in the Soviet Union? And huge Twitter storm around it. And I basically just tweeted out and I was like, hey, I'm a gay man. And like, if you think I like, I believe in the oppression of gay and lesbians and, and kind of you know genocide in, in Chechnya, like there's nothing about my work that, that relates to that or, or wants to kind of engage with that. And immediately they were like, oh, sorry, that wasn't for you, that was for McKinsey. And I was like, cool, <laughs> you, can, you can do McKinsey what you want. It's like, but I think the whole point is that it's like, people like they dehumanize the artifact or the kind of the the fragmented texts that we place out there in these kinds of mediums, like social media. And I recognize you're not just talking about social media. And in that case, it's very easy to kind of get into dehumanized conversations, you know, lots and lots of fascinating things, you know, like somebody will die and their dog will get, you know, malnutrition or whatever, and they'll be hate- speech about the person who died. I'm, I'm floored by the kinds of stuff that happens in, in the social media context. And I think it's just because we haven't treated it like a real and thoughtful container for the conversations we wanna have. So I do think there's some really interesting players. But one of the things I like, we looked a little bit at Reddit while I was writing the book, only because Reddit users establish rules for the conversations they're having, and then they police, self-police those rules. And so it actually ends up being a kind of very different kind of conversation because of that kind of structure. They're treating it like a, with some formality and some kind of respect to the forum. So I'm really intrigued in those kinds of mediums and how that, how that plays out.
0: Yeah, so it's very interesting uh, that you talk a lot about um, structure and also kind of the space within which conversation takes place, like for example, Reddit or social media. And I wonder how do you see the human machine conversation, like, for example, a chatbot on a website? Is, is for you, is that chatbot then the space in which that conversation happens?
2: Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because I, you know, in essence, one of the things I write about is one of the very first chat box with bots, which is Eliza that was actually developed to kind of, kind of begin to kind of think about the, the human user interface. And, and you know, it was named for Eliza Doolittle in, in I can't remember the name of the, the, the musical, but, but you know, that was based on this kind of Rogerian therapy, the idea that like therapy, there was a therapeutic practice at that point where it's like, you would say something like, I'm having a bad day. And I would say, why are you having a bad day? And that mirrored effect of dialogue that was like the the chatbot construct would allow you to kind of unlock like some some deep things about about how it plays. You know, I don't know if we're there, although I will say I'm gonna reverse order that, which is like one of the more interesting conversations I had with Google was about Google Home and the loss of thank you. And so what was really interesting was I was sitting with people who who did kind of like the Google Home work and they were like, my kids are are so ungracious. And I was like, well, does your device help them become learn ungraciousness? So if you think about like Alexa or Google or whatever, it's like it's like we forget to do things like, thank you, Alexa, right? It's like the, the things that, that actually... And so we kind of program those things out of like our daily lives because of the interface that we have with our um, machines. So I'm actually really interested in... If we're going to be creating these chat box kind of contexts that are actually training us in terms of the ways that we're having conversations, especially at young ages, like how do we train in the right reciprocity? Like again, it's like, we don't know, but it's like, why not treat the device with respect? You know, it's like, it's like, I mean, what 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 benefits do we have by not in general, like learning disrespect to anything? You wouldn't have something you love in your house, you wouldn't have like, you know, the <laughs> i think a lot of this work is about respecting and acknowledging the things that we cohabitate with not just humans um and machines actually end up being a really significant piece of that and increasingly so so i'm very interested in it i have i spent a lot of time with my husband when he's working which is i'm just like i'm like do you anthropomorphize like are you like looking at this as like a human and he's like no and he's like it's like is it an intellect and he's like it is you know it's like so it's like we kind of are always kind of um edging against that a little bit in this really interesting way. I just bought up this really interesting book that talks about, it's like, it's like the why of I can or why of I can't, and it's in science. And so it's basically why you have to think about what you can do in science more significantly, because what they're finding is that the more you believe in what you can do through science, the more you can do, which I think really starts to unpack like doors upon doors upon doors of engagement with new entities that we didn't know we could engage with. Sorry, it's a little rambly. Did I answer your question?
0: <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. No. Thank you very much. Um, I find that sparks a very interesting thought, right? Especially around voice interfaces and how we interact with them and around them. And I think if we dig a little bit deeper still in, in into that and, and those conversations, would, would you say that, in your opinion, there would be benefit? into making those conversations more collaborative than transactional?
2: I think that's exactly right. And that's actually why I find a lot of um, kind of interested and inspiration in the work that my husband does as well as other AI artists, you know? So just to give you a really quick kind of scan of what his work is. So he, he was very concerned around it, cause I think it's a really great example of a kind of deeper collaboration with machines as opposed to thinking about it as kind of like a transactional um, conversation. He started his work a couple of years ago. He was basically really focused on bias in data. He worked as a consultant for a lot of organizations and with AI. And he was really concerned about big data and the biases that are implicit there. And so he started to play around with the notion of like, what happens if you could purposely constrain the data that's placed into a machine system? So he used a very simple gun, gun structure where it's basically, it's like, one computer is learning something it's showing it to another computer and then the a computer is saying no that's not working and then it's like kind of feeding it back until the other computer is kind of perfecting um or finding a form of 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 representation of what it is but what he did is he photographed just from only from nature so from our farm because we're, we're quite rural typically he did wildflowers first i I'm kind of that were kind of in bouquets, kind of in the style of Dutch painting. Um, he basically went around and kind of like was photographing and that stuff. And he would bring small batch data, about 100, 150 images of wildflowers, post them into his AI. One machine would be processing, feeding it to the other. And then ultimately, like gradually, something akin to wildflowers would would emerge. But then he would go in and pick the ones that he felt like were most classically beautiful, kind of connected to the way humans kind of understood things and and understood nature. And then he'd feed those back into the machine and it would do it all again until he got a more refined piece, actually, that also had more resolution and could kind of take it kind of further. And those pieces then became the pieces that he now sells. And so what's really interesting is when you go into a gallery or he also is quite big in the NFT and Bitcoin space or into the virtual context, People are having conversations with machines, but they're having conversations with machines understanding of something that it hasn't really understood before, which is nature. It's the one thing that at present, you know, like machines don't impact. That's not true. It does in many different ways, but it's like, it's like learning nature. And so that alone is a really intriguing concept, which is that his series, his original work was learning nature. That's what it was called. And so basically it was like he and the machine both learning nature at the same time. So it's like, as the machine was learning, he also was going deeper into understanding, like, what are the kind of fundamental shapes that are kind of present here? How does it kind of like, how do we see decay? How does that play out? And so that to me is representative of a kind of collaborative conversation with technology that's highly representative wherever I think we can go. It's still early, early days for him, but it's like, I think that there's some really interesting insights that can be pulled from the kinds of collaboration with an intellect that's it's different. And of course, I sit there and I'm like, oh, you've got this little AI. And I'm like, oh, it's like a kid. And he's like, it's not like a kid. <laughs> it's, like, you know, so it's like He's just like, no, you're wrong. But, but I think that's a cool example of what I think is kind of like, what's, what, what I hope to see as we kind of begin to think about the, co- the collaborations and conversations we're having with these technologies.
1: This might not be
2: very coherent, but
1: <laughs> the, 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 there is something really interesting for me to in, in terms of how you can frame that because there is, it is a, a, a conversation with something, but the I, I'm always wondering where is the meaning coming from? And it, it, right now it's very much on, on our side in, in terms of interpreting what is coming out of these networks and saying, well, this is interesting, this is not, and, and feeding it back. And there is, there is that part where, what the 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 tool the algorithm is doing is is looking for patterns and similarities and playing them back to us essentially and i was wondering is there what comes next how do we embed a bit more meaning or a bit more autonomy or do we need to or am i just trying to anthropomorphize too much what is uh Essentially, just something
2: fundamentally different, and we need to accept it for what it is. It's a complex and interesting question. I don't. I don't think that's like a throwaway question. I think what's interesting to me is that it's like, is like, it's almost like, do we imagine multiple states? So there's one where there's kind of a training that's happening, where you're seeing the kind of intellect, if you want to call it that, kind of moving in a certain direction, and it's getting better and better at kind of like visualizing flowers until it basically breaks down. And that's a really interesting thing. At some point, it always decays and it collapses into kind of like complete utter destruction. It's like, it's like, it self distracts, but what's interesting about that is that it's like, on the other hand, he has other things that are kind of free reign. So he's doing quantum stuff where he just lets it go. And like, and it's kind of, that's more just like he's discovering alongside that. So in essence, the, what, what it's able to do is actually teaching him about what what he can do with it, so it's. I think again, it's a reciprocity kind of notion that it's like if if we imagine this as a one way thing where we're filtering and then training back. I think ultimately we'll be. I think ultimately we'd be disappointed with the results of that because it doesn't let us see the uniqueness of of the, of the of the element. And that's actually a lot of what I'm thinking about right now. So just a really funny story of Megan Ronald, which is that the other kind of pre-publishing story is that like when I first wrote the proposal, my agent sent it around to some pretty famous authors and they looked at it and they were like, oh, I think this book really wants to be just about listening. And she came back to me with that. And I was like, ah, oh, no way. Like I'm, I'm better than just a book on listening. Like I want a book on like conversation and whatever. And just recently, I think about the last couple months, like I was driving back to our farm upstate and then um, I was just reflecting on all the patterns of green in the landscape and you know green is a is a trigger um, color for us we actually are our, our brains are especially trained on green because we relied on differentiation and patterns and things that stood out from green back when we were hunters to make sure that we weren't didn't become the prey and so in fact when we're in green spaces we're in dialogue with nature in a really significant way and I was just like how often do we recognize that we're in conversation with nature? How often do I recognize that I'm in conversation with the animals around me? Or really weirdly, the air currents or the weather and patterns. You know, we had massive flooding here yesterday, which is like all new as we watch New York become more tropical in, in its context. And I feel like in essence, like we have to tune ourselves to start to listen to things that we haven't been trained to listen to. The patterns of the wind, the, 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 the fragrances that come through, the, the kind of the movements that we have, the, the color patterns, those things are all telling us something, even if it's not sentient, even though if it's not saying, oh, you need to learn this, we're still, there's still something to learn from it. And so my current premise for what I want to work on next is a book called, it's called Keep Listening, Why What You're Not Hearing Can Change Your Life. And it's really looking at kind of like steps away from like, let's look at human listening patterns and then let's look at look at intraspecial listening patterns or let's look at like there's an inuit state that basically declared itself an, an independent nation state which was fascinating because suddenly when they did that the world listened to them in a way that was really different and so what are the ways you can kind of force new ways of listening in the world that would give you a broader context that's why i like thomas saraceno's work because with the aerocene, he's basically collaborating with wind currents around the globe and so you're having to listen to something really different um, and listening with different kinds of mechanisms. And then of course there's the great listening, which is listening to something well beyond us. Um, and really intrigued by that. Yeah,
1: that, that is 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 fascinating. A small side note because you mentioned New York and tropical weather. So we're we're both on the coasts of the Mediterranean. And a new word I learned this week, which directly relates to listening, is a medicane, and a medicane is the term that meteorologists have come up to describe this new phenomenon of Mediterranean hurricanes. Uh So right now, as I'm sitting here, I can hear the wind picking up because there is a medicane coming our way. There's definitely a lot of need to listen to nature these days.
2: It's really true. I mean, it's like if you drove through upstate New York and saw the floodplains that were kind of existent that had never existed before, when we're seeing kind of like 50-year floods that actually are happening kind of like on a kind of monthly basis, you can't listen to that and know that something radical has changed. And, And I think that that's kind of like... And I think that's our job now, Is to get better at listening it for the things that not just for our own self preservation but for the preservation of of the habitat that we have which is profound and amazing. So sorry, I'm getting it's I didn't mean to be more meta. (laughs) Uh, That's that's what we enjoy
1: about this conversation. Yeah, we we need to. Mikey, I have a a question, but
0: Uh, go ahead, feel free.
1: so and this is this is taking the the opportunity to to pick your brains further fred so the the premise of what we do as as open dialogue is when when we think of designing conversations we we think of designing the space right and that is what we 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 feel this connection with everything that you're saying because we feel that there is a space that we need to design within which you're going to have your human participant and your machine participant and we need to provide the conditions for them to communicate and collaborate and coordinate to solve a problem so we we reframe the the typical chatbot challenge from you know we need to build a bot that is 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 facing outwards and and we're kind of in the bot as the designers looking outwards instead We're the designers of a context, a space, within which we will place a bot with certain capabilities, but we also design for the human. And Mm -hmm. how can we help this human figure out what's the best way to take advantage of what's there? And this comes from the, the theory behind it is something that's called Electronic Institutions. That's actually inspired by social institutions, where we say, well, how do we know how to behave in different contexts? We institutionalize certain behaviors, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. But essentially, when we enter a space, we assume a role and we have some expectations. So I was wondering, from from your perspective and and in terms of what you you did for, for your book and what you're looking next, what... What is the role of this institutions for you and how can we shape them uh, or reshape them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to actually ask you, could you give me like a, an example of that where you've done it? Because I'm like, just mostly because I'm so interested in what you're doing. So I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear like a kind of like, what, what, like what, what's the place where you've done that? Just to give me...
1: So an, an example of within the, the chatbot space, you can it can be very mundane. So it can be something as saying, well, walking into a store and asking for assistance to choose a product is an institution. And the, the user is assuming the role of the customer and the bot is assuming the role of the assistant. And there is a back and forth to, to figure out what to do. It can be mm-hmm. a bit more interesting where you're saying, well, the, the context is therapy and the, the bot is trying to help the user talk through issues and th- think through problems. And there's very interestingly, so the, the WHO is doing some research in this space and they've, they've shown that automated conversations that with the aim of providing therapy and, and support can lead to similar results as those that you would have with a human therapist. And and what becomes very interesting then is if you think of places where it's actually hard to get a lot of therapists, refugee right. camps, impoverished uh, areas and so on, it becomes a radical way to to solve uh, some of those problems. So it's 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 taking human spaces or typically human spaces and saying, well, What if one of those participants were a machine? Can we create, recreate those conversations and and help the process?
2: So interesting. First of all, thank you for the example that they're, they're, they're super, super helpful. And I'm, I'm really, really intrigued and wanna hear more. I think one of the things that's really intriguing to me about that is that it's like, is the inherent one-wayness of the roles that you're actually taking. So, so what, what I think is really intriguing is like, and, I, and I, it really was triggered for me when you talked about the, the shopkeeper and the, and the customer, which is that what's intriguing about human experience is that if I'm the shopkeeper and Mecca, you're the customer, in another landscape, I'm the customer so I, I know what it feels like to be a customer as a shopkeeper, right? So it's like, I'm going to go someplace else to get my dinner and it's going to be, I'm going to be the customer, you know, it's like, and you may not be the shopkeeper, but there might be some place where you're giving service to somebody and kind of understand what that role is. And so there's a mutuality of our understanding of those roles that actually allows us to basically say, well, as the customer, I'd rather not abuse the shopkeeper because I recognize the shopkeeper is me in this context, or as a shopkeeper, I'm not going to yell at the service at the person I'm serving because I've been a customer in someplace else. And so one of the things I think about is that if we actually assume a kind of uniformity of who takes what kinds of roles. So the computer or the technology is the service provider, not the provision provider. Do we actually kind of like short circuit, or kind of that's a not a great <laughs> analogy, but do we do we kind of like do we wall off the potential for comprehension or expansion of what that that um, technology can do? So, I'd be really intrigued if whether you could actually kind of begin to play with role reversals. So, what happens if like you're the shopkeeper and the computer or the technology is the customer, and what what might that then what they might might they learn even more so? what, what happens if they're the what is it called an Analyze and like the 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 end results of the end end receiver of therapy and 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 you're the therapist and I, I think there's some really interesting kind of dynamics around that. But you know it's interesting as you were talking. I'm going to show you something. I know it's a, a podcast, but we when you were talking about the therapy in field, one of the things that's really interesting is that we've just come out with a game. It's coming out just before Thanksgiving, so it's it's basically called Campfire, and it's a, it's a it's a it's a game you play with a group of people. But what's interesting is it's. It's basically, it's a conversation game that, that has points and systems in it that basically allows people to kind of break through. And what, what's interesting about it is that what I've realized as I've been playing the game. So I've been playing it a lot recently and we've also been kind of testing is that the game is selfish. The game has a way it wants to be played and it actually, it's like, it's very funny. It's almost like an entity in the, in the sense that it's like, you're like, Oh, it's kind of here for you, but it's kind of here for yourself and for itself. And what's interesting is the way that the games always end is either you break the game or the game breaks you. And if it breaks you, it breaks you in a good way. Like you have a kind of emotional breakthrough and people kind of help each other, but it can be played by by yourself. And you really do feel like you're playing with a thing, you know, that it's like that, that has a will and is trying to kind of assert something, which is fascinating. So it reminded me of the kind of the, the technology therapy in, in, in refugee camps,
1: and, and it, goes, it goes directly back to the idea of institutions, right? Because right. What, when we talk about uh, things like institutional racism or institutional bias, that's exactly what we're talking about, that the context in itself is a another participant in this interaction, and it has its own goals and the things that will make it happy. And yeah. while you feel you are interacting just with one other thing, actually, you are interacting within the constraints and pressures of a context that lead you in a certain way. And what I like,
2: and it's funny, because it's like, if you think about it, like, so the game is a microcosm of an institution, right? So to that end, what I think is really interesting is that the game actually makes it explicit. So it's really funny. So at some point when you're in, like, two thirds through the game, the old might pull a prompt that says, sing a song to the game about where it's gotten you So far, so you're basically giving praise to the game. So you're acknowledging that you're living by an institutional rules, basically. And so, what I think is interesting from what you're talking about is like, what can actually like lift you out for a moment to basically say, I'm in an institution. It has goals. Like, it's like, am I, am I participating, collaborating, or rebelling against that? Like, are there moments to kind of lift up? So when the game asks you to do these things, you're like, I'm out of here for a second do I want to do this, you know, and then you can go back in and and kind of begin and then re-acknowledge the rule sets or the principles by which the institution lives. So I think there's some really interesting kind of like ways to begin to kind of step out and step back into an institution to understand exactly where you, where you fit and how you fit. And
1: uh, so can you tell us a bit more, I'm very intrigued by the game now. uh, So let's, Please tell us where can we get it and when it's coming out once more. I,
2: I will I will get it. So it's called, it's called Campfire. It's like it's M C A M P H Y R E and it basically has two components to it. Basically it's it's prompts and the prompts are kind of based on age-old kind of like archetypes. So it's things like the friend, the dreamer, the fool. And, the, and when the, when you pull those prompts, the prompts can be really ridiculous. So here's one on the fool. Look to the person to your right and come up with a cocktail for them. Name it, describe the ingredients and why you chose them. So that's like, that's a very simple kind of thing. But then we have these kind of muse cards, which are basically gods and goddesses, and they actually can take points away or give points based on how well you played it. So it's, a, it's basically like saying like, give it take away a point from somebody who basically feel like they're not in the game they've put they have checked out of the game so again that's a that's a game constraint it's like you're not in the game I'm the game I don't I want you in the game and so you play until you have four points and invariably you have this kind of emotional breakthrough and that's when you stop the game I give away the end maybe we cut that it's like so it's like when you have the emotional breakthrough that's that's what you're playing for and so at some point what happens is that people are like we don't need to play the game anymore. And that's when you know you've kind of gotten through it. And then about a month later, people are like, let's play the game again. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. I will, we're, we're going to be um, sending out QR codes and stuff. So you, hopefully to get everybody to buy it by the holidays. So it's, it's a great thing to play with family and friends, even with colleagues. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sounds
0: very interesting. Uh, so now and I also want to play it. And it's interesting <laughs> to think about how, like games change our conversations, even with conversational AI and and Amazon Alexa, for example, or other kind of voice device. One of the more popular applications on these devices are actually games. People yeah, so are right. playing games, both single player and multiplayer. So it's interesting to to see how how games kind of change or shape the conversation, right? As in, yeah. uh, so your game, for example, then games that you can play with kind of a, a voice user interface, or even like physical games. I remember this game, which was like the worst game in the world, like literally, <laughs> where you had to, it was a bit like sparking conversation as actually. So it asked questions and you had to designate the person in the group that you felt was most like that? And so one of the questions, for example, is who's the most annoying person at a party? And then each person like noted down a name of the people that were there. And then everyone, like when the time was up, everyone shared who they thought was like most annoying or who would do this thing in this kind of situation. And then after that, obviously, like depending on on the questions you've got, people would get like their feelings would be hurt or like so, and then all sorts of like tension and and tensionful conversations would start to happen. and why did you think that I was the most annoying person? In, and, and and so on and so forth. So it sparks conversation like in a good or a bad way.
2: You have to be really careful. I mean, when you're designing a game and like we've gone through this all the time, like the first time we played, we were like, there's there's magic in this. It's just like, is it black magic or white magic? <laughs> is it good or bad magic? And it's like, and and we really had to make sure that it, people felt safe and it could actually be secure. So the rules are really kind of established to kind of establish, I mean, and it's interesting, Ronald, that you were saying this. It's everything from like, what's the room like that you're in like it's like you would not play this game like in a restaurant or out in public it's like it needs to be something that actually where you feel kind of like you're you're sheltered by, by your context in a really significant way so so there are actually quite specific it's like like the rules are like pay attention to where you're playing me. it's that kind of thing but michael what i think is interesting is that you know games in many ways are well this is the funny thing because in that case games are practice conversations and or they become the conversations themselves right and it's like and and games teach us how to have conversations in the 70s here in the US, there was a really interesting kind of revolution in games called New Games, which was developed by Stuart Brand, who basically did Whole Earth Catalog and like a lot of like the, I think the long, the clock of the long now, it's like a lot of the stuff that he does, really intriguing. But New Games were basically collaborative games, you know, so it wasn't like, let's all get a ball into each other's, you know, into somebody else's net. It was like, let's get this one big ball all the way across the field together. And by doing that, you kind of reset the, the the framework for what a purpose of a game is, and they ended up building an institute off that that used those games to kind of go around into anyone that was dealing with significant disadvantage, those kinds of communities, and begin to kind of play those games to kind of begin to think about collaborative action. So, so games are a powerful force. We do a lot of work that, about with gamification, gameplay. When we're we we call them dangerous games when we do work with our clients, where it's like these are games that may break some things, but it's like, but hopefully they'll help you kind of build things again as well.
0: And sometimes you need to break something to build it up again. Is that kind of the?
2: Indeed, I mean, we we have a whole kind of structure called break and make, which is basically what needs to be broken so the right things can be made. And like that's that's like a framework that's quite useful. And by the way, once you kind of like go there, it starts to mean that you hold things in institutions perhaps Ronald a little less precious. Like you're like, well, we're living in this context. This is a. We're in a courtroom, which is an institution and it has within it the rules and structures that may be implicitly biased against certain kinds of people who are coming through it. And so what you need to do at some point is be like, well, wait a second, what's wrong with this context? What's wrong with this institution and the way it's built that actually kind of like is implicitly or, or, or explicitly biasing the results of, of what's coming in. And, and those things need to be questioned and broken.
1: And I think I, w- I will make a a public confession in the in the context of breaking institutions that is is about Mike and me so last week we had a conversation with with Mike was as kind of saying well what works and what doesn't and part of the conversation was Micah, sometimes you you interrupt people and they, they don't get the chance to, to 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 finish what they were saying. At the same time, and this was sparked by um, reading something that you wrote or said somewhere, which is, well, sometimes an interruption can be revolutionary. It can be yeah. a really useful thing. So publicly, Micah... Sometimes your interruptions are a very (laughs) useful thing.
0: Uh, Actually, I saw Fred's tweet like today. Yes, it was. I was like, but but, like, to be honest, it's good to have those kind of conversations as well that improve conversations. I feel, um, to bring it back to conversation design, I feel a lot of the time conversation design is in a human machine um, kind of setting of the rules and 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 we define kind of what is the model going to be how is this institution going to work what is this bot going to say to people and so on and so forth and a lot of the time we kind of go on the premise of parts that have been shredded already in these institutions and we don't keep a lot of space of giving the user the opportunity to indicate that this is not where they wanted to go with this conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, there are a lot of kind of advocates, or I don't know how to call it. In the practice, in the conversation design practice, a lot of the um, theory goes around, you have to first create the happy path of the conversation, as in you set out what you think the model should be, as in from hello to goodbye, this is what should be happening. Obviously, humans do very are very fickle creatures that never ever like thread the destined path but we don't i don't think in a lot of conversational experience we give them the what machines the opportunity to indicate that this is not actually the conversation i wanted to have
2: yeah yeah that's so interesting. I mean, I was, I was so, so many things sparked for me while you were talking about it. I mean, first of all, like just on the interruption front, like it's like, it's an incredibly valuable skill. And in fact, in many cases, we are actually training organizations to learn how to interrupt people because it's, it's like something that actually many of us are not that good at. And it's, 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 and interruption allows people to basically evaluate where they are in a conversation or whether feels good so it's like there are there are really beneficial aspects to that but one of the things that was coming up as you were talking about it, and i go back to ron your, your um, example of the store the shopkeeper and the and the, the service person which is like it, even even that is really interesting because it's like what would happen if like the technology was the products or what if the you know it's like i mean like what, what happens if you start to kind of like like let, let's recast the conversations like do we need a shopkeeper like what if the product spoke directly to the to the people themselves. Like, what if, I mean, like, it's like, what if like you were playing the currencies, like, what, what are the different ways that you might kind of reformulate what that conversation is? And, and what I think is really intriguing, and it's something that I believe in the world is that, you know, there is no singular future. And in fact, in any context, the future that I'm experiencing right now is like, really different than the future that they're feeling across the water, you know, in New Jersey, as I, as I look at it, you know, it's like, and like, it's really different than like the the town that got flooded. That's not my town upstate, you know, it's like so so you're seeing radically different futures happening all the time and it's in those multiplicities that we're not talking about science fiction we're just like that's the truth like it's like different people are having experiencing different paths as we speak we we perhaps miss by looking for the happy future we miss other happy futures you know so it's like so i think there's some really that said there is value to having like a a notion of what what happy could look like I have a really great little story that I can tell you can I if I can take you like yeah yeah. it's my favorite story about rules and it's in the book but it's I, I think it's worthwhile because I think it's it's about the notion of like interruption asking the question about whether the rules actually apply and the kind of significant power it can have so there are other kinds of institutions Ronald you talked about kind of like there's so many right and one of them is basically customs or rituals or the things that we kind of like, or the rules by which we kind of do things that are not necessarily tied to any institution or any organization per se, but just kind of live implicit in our culture. And my, one of my favorite ones that I actually came across was the rules for duels, right? So there was this thing called co-duello and coduello duello was like, a governed dueling for basically millennia. And, and, you know, it's, was pretty close to like whatever you see, like Hamilton or whatever. It's like the 10 rules, you know, like 10 feet apart, blah, 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 those kinds of things. Until around the 1830s, 1840s across the globe. So not just in the US, across the globe. um, People started to kind of be like, hey, I want to sort of stand up for my values and the things that matter, but I kind of don't want to die. Like, it's like, I mean, that's, I wasn't there. I can't guess, but it's like, it felt like at some point people were like, that was bubbling up. They're like, but do I want to die for this? And so they rewrote the code Duello. So to play so that it's like, if I challenge challenged gut, to a duel, then I then gave you the rules. So I was like, okay, I just put you into this place. Now you have the rules so you can come back and design the way the conversation happens or the duel happens. And the example that I loved is like one of the most famous duels that was never fought, which was when Abraham Lincoln was challenged to a duel back in the 1840s. Already late duels were kind of ending by then. And they were, he was given the rules and so what he did is he set the rules and he basically is like, We're gonna we're gonna fight with revolutionary war broadswords, and we can't get within 12 feet of each other. So it's like pandemic-based a duel. And they got to the battlefield, the, the dueling field, and he told the rules, and the other person basically burst in hysterical laughter, like, Well, this is ridiculous. And they were like, Yeah, it is ridiculous. Let's go home. So they went home. And so it's this great example by kind of like, By saying, if we have a convention, which is we're going to challenge somebody to dual, but you can break that convention by saying, but we're going to shift the rules so that if you're implicit, it goes again, Micah, to the kind of notion of the roles you're cast in and whether you're happy in those roles, you get to then reset the whole context, which then makes it a kind of safer place for both of you. So, anyway, I just love that as a historical example of what the power of breaking, basically breaking and resetting rules.
0: It's really interesting that. One of the thoughts that when I was while I was reading your book, one of the thoughts that sparked for me from a conversation design perspective was, well, we're bringing users into this conversational application. And as it stands now, what we do is we say, we welcome them and we say, here is what you can do. Like, here is the conversation we're going to have. And we give them very little space to express themselves. And, and so one of the things that I was thinking is, Perhaps we should refrain that onboarding to be more about listening than than about forcing an experience upon people. And obviously, the technology also kind of constrains you to to be more guiding or, I guess, in non-listening mode, in proactive mode. Although you could listen with something as simple as as buttons and just ask a few more questions up front rather than saying I'm supposing that you're here to do this thing
2: right I think that's right and it's like it goes back to some of the things I said with my husband's work which is that it's like you know he's in essence listening to a conversation that he's not in at most of it because it's like he's watching two computers in in dialogue with each other and then he's the one who's basically saying wait a second I want to interrupt here because I think there's something really valuable that we can actually all kind of do together if we if we do that and and so I, I think that that there's so many ways to listen. I mean, I think that's a really interesting example where you can set a conversation going between two other things and watch. And so by watching that, you're actually, in, you're listening to a whole different construct than if you were actually in conversation yourself. So there's really interesting, which is, by the way, a very common historic religious practice. It's like witnessing, you know, it's like you're witnessing a conversation and from that pulling stuff that other people might not see, it's like, you know, there's, there's a lot of precedent for it in our, in human history.
0: And there was another thing that came just before, so I'm not totally not following the order of this conversation and jumping all over the place. I'm I'm so very sorry. I'm very bad for a conversation. It's the paradox of a conversation designer. I am very bad at following threads. Um, it's but,
2: totally. That's not a problem.
0: <laughs> that's why I like our model so much because we're I like, why well, we're more about kind of fluctuating and dynamic conversation than about following kind of three structure-like patterns. Right. So, uh, right. yeah. I think it's because my brain works that way as well. But I recently yes. l- read a very nice study, actually, on conversational analysis and the sociological aspects of it. And it's Herbert Clark that uh, kind of compares conversations to social creations. And he says that that they are produced one step at a time. And so you don't know what the future will be because as each participant adds to the conversation, it, it changes the, the conversation ever so slightly. So what he says, like what he says is what I find very interesting, is that the conversation and the goal of the conversation kind of becomes clearer as you build this conversation together between participants. And another thing that he says is you do this while you are doing a joint activity. So while you are doing something to gather the conversations part and so on and so forth. So that made me think about that was like when we're like, there can be multiple futures, obviously, when you kind of build one upon the other, and not none of you really know where it's going to go, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I actually write about a lot that I think about, quite a bit in our work is is change spotting so it's like so one of the things i think that actually so what's interesting is that i absolutely agree with that um i think that the where that fails us is if we let the conversation go on without recognizing where something has shifted so there's often and that's the game does that really well where it's when you're like wait a second this all changed it doesn't matter that the the construct doesn't matter anymore and so and so it actually teaches you change change spotting you're like wait okay stop this is and so if you're kind of in this social construction so you're actually building Building this forward, the, the greatest mistake we often make is missing the moment where something has changed. And the collective has basically said, like, wait a second, we're kind of aligned around this, we can go here. And if you don't spot that, it'll it'll drift away from you. And so then you go too far, and you've left your future someplace back in the conversation. And so one of the kind of greatest skill sets, I think, and it's actually why things like the notion of witnessing, or, you know, watching a conversation happen, it kind of is, is that it's like, is that when you're in a conversation, often, it's hard to be like, if you're really in it, to notice like when something has spiked out and you're like, wait a second, it's changed. Whereas like there might be other kinds of roles or ways that you can basically be like something shifted here. And now it's a moment to kind of move from conversation to the next step, which is the kind of the actuality of creation. And so I think there's some really remarkable tools and skills that we need to have so that we can actually let, let that social um, creation happen, but then make sure it, something manifests um, from it as opposed to kind of just kind of gets lost in the in the multitude of the conversation.
1: So... If, if we go, if we go back to the start and you, you talked about how you were looking for, well, you, you wanted to talk about how we, we lost some capabilities and it, it was uh, essentially a down moment. And then you were challenged with, well, turn it into a more optimistic outlook. And, and there was that entire process. What is your, what's the journey that you would suggest to people to go on or how How does one start that process of saying, well, maybe there's something there around conversations that I have to think about myself and how to do it. What do I do next?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I have a very kind of simplistic notion around this, which is that it's like, you know, from my perspective, it's my job to have as many conversations as possible. And I'll I'll give you like a a very strong ulterior motive why I would suggest for anybody that they should actually kind of suggest that, which is that the more conversations you're having with more different people, the more able you are to kind of spot what's happening in the future. So it's like, so one of the things that I actually believe is that by kind of casting your net wide, talking to people you wouldn't talk to otherwise, it's actually a self-preservation or a self kind of like fulfillment mechanism in the sense that you're actually kind of, you have your fingers on things and you're saying, wait a second, I'm seeing this thing happen and I believe it's gonna manifest at at this point. You know, So one of the nicest kind of blurbs I got in the book was my old boss, David Kelly at IDEO saying, hey, you've always been like three years ahead of time which means you have to be like deep in the now to know what's coming in, in like in the future. But that's because you're having conversations with everybody. So that's a justification to say, there's great benefit to talking to everybody. That aside there's great benefit to talking to everybody just because then you start then because then you start to kind of unpack the kinds of conversations you would have otherwise so you know talk to your waitress talk to the uber driver talk to the like talk to people like it's like and and it, you may not want to but it's like but what you learn and what you pick up when you do those things is actually really profound and so I would say there's no conversation that actually outweighs another and I'm working with un and SDgs and it's just like yeah, the, the conversation that happened in the rooms there is really important, but it's as important to think about the like local communities that are grappling with the kind of the results of not kind of being able to affect the change that needs to happen and how that goes on. So I would just say like, get curious, start small, talk to like somebody who you don't talk to, you know, daily and, and then gradually kind of like expand from there. But it's, it's, it's really no small feat. And I think to the point that you guys brought up, recognize that sometimes you're in conversation, even if you're not talking. Right. So it's like, I, I, my mom was raised in a deaf household, you know, so I spent much of my childhood when I, like all my celebrations were deaf celebrations. So it was like, they were silent, but animated and you become very aware that there's a conversation that's happening without words being said. And then so start to get really good at being like, wait, is there a conversation happening that I might just be missing? Because I assume it's words that make a conversation, which is not at all true. So yeah, just, It's our job, be curious, talk to people, talk to things, talk to machines.
0: Thank you, Fred. That that is a wonderful note to end on because I'm super aware of time. I could probably still go on for for quite a bit. (laughs) And pick your brain.
2: No, no, it's so fun. I've really enjoyed it.